community solar allows residential customers and commercial customers to subscribe to remotely sited solar projects and save money on their annual power spend through the generation of bill credits. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to interview Steve Rader, who's the CEO and founder of Summit Ridge Energy, and Brian Dunn, who has a dual role of COO, CFO, and co-founder of Summit Ridge Energy. I also interviewed Steve on episode 26 of the Solar Maverick Podcast. It's called A Developer's Perspective on the U.S. Solar Market. If you don't know Summit Ridge Energy, Summit Ridge is the nation's leading owner and operator of community solar Asset, providing energy savings to thousands of customers across the country. The team has been a strong force within the U.S. commercial solar market for years and was instrumental in the creation of virtual power purchase agreements and associated financing structures. Summit Ridge Energy has leveraged this experience to launch Summit Ridge Capital, a dedicated funding platform that acquires pre-operational community solar and battery storage projects. Summit Ridge Energy also works with landowners across the country to maximize the value of their acreage by offering predictable lease income to host their solar farms. There are many amazing things that the company has been able to do. It's amazing in a very short period of time. Summit Ridge started in 2017 with six people and zero in revenue. And now in 2020, to have approximately 50 employees and several hundred million in revenue top line. Some of the interesting topics that Steve and Brian talk about is how the company grew during COVID. They speak about trends in community solar. They talk about the tax equity market. And they also speak about standalone battery storage projects they're developing with EV charging. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. And thank you, Steve and Brian, for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us back, Benoit. Good to hear your voice. You know, I'm excited about it because I think you could bring like a unique perspective of the solar industry and both your unique experiences. And obviously, 2020, you know, has been a unique year for the industry. But I think it would be helpful to start off with learning more. Can you tell us about Summit Ridge Energy and then your specific roles at the company and what you focus on? Sure. But no, I don't know if unique is the word for 2020. <laughs> Dumpster fire is a yeah. word that comes to mind. <laughs> I was but, trying to be uh, like, use a euphemism for that. <laughs> but dumpster fire is definitely better, probably. <laughs> we're managing. We're managing well. So the question was, roles at SRE. So I'm the CEO and founder of Summer Ridge. Brian is actually the chief operating officer and co-founder oh, of the company. No, no, no worries. He also is a dual role, COO, CFO. I run the company on a day-to-day basis with Brian. You know, we've grown considerably since we started back in the summer of 2017 and have close to 50 employees at this point and quite a few projects under construction across across the country, across different markets, over 40 at this point. So we are still very much in tactical mode. This was quite the year to navigate. And I think we've come out the other side at this point. We're excited for the prospect of 21, honestly, just to get 2020 done with here. Get it off the books. And get it off the books. We've got a big election coming up and you know we're optimistic there and still feel like the community solar space and just the renewable energy industry, CNI Solar in general, has an extremely bright future ahead of it. I totally agree with you. It would be great if you could talk about maybe more of what you focus on as, you know, COO and responsibility as CFO. And also too, like, I think it would be helpful for the audience to understand why you both founded Summit Ridge and how that partnership came together. 
Yeah. So started off at CFO here at Summer Ridge, got the uh, promotion, thanks, Steve, up to the COO title. You know, what I'm currently focused on, Summer Ridge, you know, managing, obviously, the books, accounting for the company, but, you know, have moved into the operational phase for the company over the past several years at span development. Development financing, construction financing, you know, permanent financing, that all uh, rolls up to me. And it's been exciting. You know, we're six people at the start there. Back in the make office in Arlington and since then, you know, we've run the, the project finance team, the development team, and it's been a Operations nice ramp up. Team. Ops, yeah. Time, Ops yeah. has been a big ramp up as well. But so focus mostly on that. Summer Ridge, I guess Steve and I, we kind of go back to some military housing rooftops and we were working on way back in the day. <laughs> Before joining up at Summer Ridge, I was at Hunt Companies, was on the private equity arm over there, and we were doing combined heat and power, solar project and company investing for a number of years. Before that, I was at J.P. Morgan in New York, but met up with Steve on the military housing uh, rooftop side when we were doing some work between Hunt and SunEd. And there was a period in time where we were trying to uh, expand that relationship. And Steve tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, why don't we just spin out into the, uh, into the Summer Ridge world? And it's been off to the races since then. So... Yeah, definitely. And you know what's amazing to me is like both of you started the company in 2017 and you're talking about 40 projects that you're working on. And what do you think is the reason for your success to be able to basically develop and own 40 projects within a relatively short time with the you know solar development cycle taking at least a year to two years? Can you talk more about that? I'd like to say it's just pure personality, but no, I think we've worked really hard over the past few years. So we actually have 40 projects under construction. We're at, we're developing and in the process of acquiring, you know, quite a few additional projects on top of that 40. But we do have an unprecedented amount of work right now under construction. Most of that's in Illinois, a market that we went hard at when it opened up about a year and a half ago, even two years ago at this point, I have received permission to operate from the utility on a handful of projects. That number is literally growing on a weekly basis at this point. I think we stayed focused. If I had to point to something that has enabled us to expand. We haven't tried to be everything to everyone. We've targeted certain markets. Unfortunately, there are only a limited number of markets where community, let alone CNI, well, CNI, I should say, let alone community solar are viable. I think that's set to change. I think that we could see some real change based on an administration change in the White House here coming up potentially. But even if that doesn't happen, you know, the cost structure of what we do continues to go down. I think the, the notion of having the rate payer participate in these solar programs is extremely attractive regardless of, you know, what side of the aisle you sit. It's something that several states have embraced. We see there are a number of new markets that are on the verge of opening up here. So we've just stayed focused. We've targeted three to four markets, yeah, maybe five, but have gone really hard into those markets. We've got competitive capital. We are one of the handful of kind of owner operators in the space. So we have the benefit of not turning around and selling the projects that we acquire, develop for the most part. There are, have been some projects that we've developed in-house that we've turned around and sold. But for the most part, we're holding on to everything that we develop and acquire, dropping it down into our holding vehicle, some of capital holdings. It's been great, but it's been a lot of hard work, particularly this year. This was a back to basics, roll up your sleeves, you know, show up for work, even if it was just figuratively speaking this year. Although Brian and I, you know, we kept coming into the office throughout the pandemic together. We would sit 12 feet apart at a, you know, at a conference room table and put numbers up on the board or, you know, go through projections. And remember at times we were literally, it felt like we were the only two people in the entire office building or the block. It was just a weird, unique time that required a ton of focus because the prospect of things falling off the rails this year, when I say things, projects at the project level, whether that be financing or construction activities, construction activities freezing up had never been higher. The possibility for those negative events to occur as high as it's ever been this year. 
fact, we did have construction activity stop the initial onset of the pandemic. They quickly picked back up. That's just the tip of the iceberg, though, in terms of challenging. Financing has been more challenging this year. Permitting projects has been more challenging this year. You know, folks that used to pick up the phone in their office are now working from home, you know, by and large, not as available as they might otherwise would be under, quote, normal times. So through grit and hard work, I think we've managed to kind of come out the other side of this year, a larger company than we were when we started with a significantly bigger pipeline. So... That's pretty amazing considering what's been going on this year and then to navigate all the different challenges, as you mentioned, with permitting, construction. I think that's a good point too that you made, Steve, about relationships as well, because I'm sure you know, you've know you as well built strong relationships with other developers and are partnering with them to develop and own their projects. And then as well with your financing sources. And I know we mentioned this, we're going to talk about like tax equity and the challenges with tax equity, especially in a world where companies and high net worth individuals aren't making as much money. Also, can you talk about how Summit Ridge Energy has adapted during these times? you know, 2020 compared to other solar developers and investors? Yeah, for sure. This was by far the hardest year, you know, probably of my professional career, let alone, you know, in Summit Ridge. We're only a three-year-old company, but we, you know, I think a testament to the character of our folks, very gritty. There was just, let's roll up our sleeves, lace up our boots, and let's get this done. Attitude that we instilled early in the year when it became apparent that these were going to be challenging several months. We actually have been able to grow throughout the pandemic and and, uh, sitting here on October 30th of 2020 than we did on February 1st or March 1st of this year. And unfortunately, a lot of our colleagues, a lot of our friends in the industry, there, there have been a number of layoffs. There have been a tremendous number of furloughs. There have been shops in our space that unfortunately have had to close their doors for good. I think we've been very fortunate in that, you know, not only were we able to kind of continue just to power through this year, you know, and here we are, a third-year business, and, you know, we're looking at doing several hundred million dollars top line in revenue this year from zero, you know, starting back in the summer of 2017. So I think Brian and I both feel really fortunate. Yeah, definitely. That's pretty amazing what you've been able to accomplish in a very short period of time. Can you talk about what states you're focused on and maybe potentially as well, like why are you focusing on those states? Sure. Illinois is a state that we've clearly been focused on. We like the structure of the program, the adjustable block program. We had an on-the-ground presence, had a Chicago office really since we opened the doors of Summer Ridge. And my brother's been out there and has been involved in, you know, kind of the regulatory side of things from day one. And that's always extremely important if you want to be successful at the market level. Maryland is a market in our backyard, which we really intended to focus on as much as we have. But just geographic proximity and some of the commercial real estate relationships that we have for rooftop systems have made Maryland extremely, you know, that's been a very successful market for us. I think we're the, the group probably, we've probably got the lion's share of the market in both states. New York's a market that we took a step back from, but have been focused on kind of on and off. The meter program presents some complexity that you know we're not as crazy about compared to other markets. We're very focused in Maine right now and have developed and acquired a, a fairly large portfolio. So we're excited about that. Pennsylvania is a market that we've been actively working on at the regulatory level with our comrades at CCSA to open up that market. And we're hoping that something passes here in the coming months. This is kind of the last shot, at least for in the near term, for something to happen in Pennsylvania. So fingers crossed, there's been a ton of hard work and effort put into that. Kind of Garen Bischoff on our staff, who you know, is spearheading that with Leslie Elder and CCSA and others. So we're really excited and are hopeful that he can kick things off in a big way. The industry needs to expand the sandbox, for lack of a better description. And a lot of that will be, I think, You'll see if there's federal support offered. I don't know exactly how that will look, but I think things could change here in the coming weeks to you know, provide just a much better platform for our industry on a go-forward basis. So we'll see. But it's limited. And, you know, we can't do this in every state. There aren't community solar programs in every state. Not every state is a deregulated market by a long shot. Most aren't, in fact. 
That doesn't directly tie to whether or not there's community solar programs, but just the notion of going installing solar, period, in certain markets doesn't work, right? So we're hopeful that the sandbox gets bigger here. And in fact, I think we're quite confident that it will. I think you mentioned a great point about ratepayers being involved in solar. And I think that's why a lot of politicians want to do community solar programs because it gives people who don't normally have access to solar the opportunity, as well as like the low moderate income community who, if they did a cash purchase for residential, wouldn't qualify based on their credit score. So I think there is a huge opportunity in other states and it'll happen, you know, eventually. So I agree with you. Can you talk about just high level, like what community solar is for our listeners who might not be familiar with it? And do you also invest like in behind the meter, commercial, industrial, or is it just purely community solar development? Yeah, we're still very focused on commercial solar at Summer Ridge. Most of our roots, in fact, are in behind the meter PPAs, virtual net metering, remote net metering with commercial offtake. So we're very familiar with commercial contracts and structures in these various state programs. Our current portfolio is focused in the Midwest, the Northeast, and the Mid-Atlantic, much like our residential offtake footprint. Midwest offtake at Summer Ridge is more aligned with high-energy users like food processors, manufacturers, ice in New England, more focused on muni offtake, traditional mush offtake, whether through fixed rate or uh, floating rate EPAs. If you Google it, you'll see a number of different definitions or durations out there within the context of these larger community solar programs that have rolled out in states like Illinois, Massachusetts, et cetera. Community solar allows residential customers and commercial customers to subscribe to remotely sited solar projects and save money on their annual power spend through the generation of bill credits. The primary benefit of community solar, in addition to cost savings, is that residential customers don't need to install panels on the rooftop. Commercial customers don't need to install panels on the roof or behind their facility. They can just subscribe to remotely sited solar projects, typically within their same utility service territory. Community solar projects are smaller than utility scale projects, typically in the two to five megawatt AC range. And we're seeing community solar projects sited on a number of different locations. So brownfields, greenfields, certain rooftop applications. But yeah, typically in that two to five megawatt AC range and connected at the distribution level. One other thing to note about community solar is uh, low to moderate income carve-outs that exist in many of these state programs. If you look at programs like Massachusetts, Maryland, New Jersey, Illinois, all these programs have specific low to moderate income carve-outs that allow folks who may fall below a certain income threshold to subscribe to low to moderate income solar projects. And so while there are some serious administrative challenges to setting up these programs and ensuring a smooth rollout, it is a step in the right direction. In fact, we're subscribing our first low to moderate income project in the U.S. That project's in Maryland right now. We'll turn that on in the middle part of 2021 and you know, hope to have many more projects over the coming years. In terms of a practical example, Maine's a market that we're very active in right now. We've been developing our own projects for the past couple of years. We're now acquiring projects in the market. In fact, we have our first closing coming up here in a couple of weeks one of our development partners. Yeah, we'll start construction in that portfolio in the May to June timeframe of 2021. But well in advance of construction start, you know, we'll be subscribing residential and commercial customers to our projects across the state. So if you're a residential customer living in downtown Portland, Maine, you know, when we turn our projects on at the end of 2021, you know, you'll be able to subscribe to a project that's 75 miles away from downtown Portland, but still in central Maine power service territory and save X percent on your power bill. So that's essentially how how that timing would work. We might get that customer subscribed in what, early 2021, and we'll have them, we'll keep them apprised of the project status. We'll keep things, you know, moving along on our side, but they'll actually start realizing the benefits of community solar at the end of 2021, probably in the fall timeframe, you know, when we turn the system on and actually interconnect with the local CMP grid. That is really helpful to understand. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned residential customers. How do you educate residential customers about community solar and how do you acquire those customers? I know you probably part 
partner with customer acquisition and management company, but it'd be interesting to get your perspective on that because Community Solar is relatively new for residential customers. It's new and it's evolving, right? And I think Community Solar looks different in a few years than it does today. And we're working on some other things that I'm really excited about behind the scenes that I think will potentially enable us to scale this in a much bigger way. But we do work with a handful of aggregators. A lot of folks know that Arcadia is a close working partner with Summit Ridge, and we work extensively with them across multiple markets, not the least of which is Illinois, where they're helping us subscribe upwards of 13, 14,000 customers. Is that right? And the other partners we work with are great. It is ultimately limited in terms of scale. For now, I think it's a model that works well. I think the more markets, though, that open up as the opportunity set becomes larger, there could be some changes in how customers are acquired that we are working on with some others behind the scenes that we're excited about. Right now, it seems like customer acquisition is pretty expensive because a lot of it is really calling the customers or meeting them at different events. When do you think like customer acquisition will in the future happen primarily online? Because that would save a lot of time and expense. I know obviously customer aggregator companies do have this sort of functionality, but it seems like it hasn't taken off. I don't know if you have any perspective on that. It's not one that it hasn't taken off. Arcadia is a great example of a group that uses multiple means to acquire customers, right? And they do have a very sophisticated digital platform. And that's one means by which they go out and acquire customers. The space is still relatively nascent to the point where you do need to pick up the phone and actually have that human touch point with the customer and describe to the customer how the program works and why they should sign up and what the benefits are of signing up. I think we have noticed that the aggregators that go out and acquire customers the fastest use multiple means, right? It's not just digital. It's not just knocking on doors. It's not just sending mailers and flyers, which believe it or not, is a strategy that still use more. So I think for land acquisition than customer acquisition, but it's an all the above strategy. And I agree with you. I think it moves increasingly more towards a digital acquisition process in the future, but I don't think we're there yet. I agree with you. It's like multiple strategy and it's about job creation and renewable energy will be one of the biggest job creators, I feel like, in the economy going forward. And that's great. Can you talk about your electricity bill relief program during COVID? We committed $150,000 to customers in Illinois that signed up for our systems. Everyone's got an electricity bill that comes due each month. And this was a particularly hard year, one of the hardest, if not the hardest in recent memory. And we wanted to do our part and, you know, provide a little extra savings. You know, $150,000 is not a huge commitment spread across thousands of customers. But, you know, it's something and we decided as a group that we needed to start doing a little bit more with folks this year. We also wanted to keep a spotlight on community solar in the state of Illinois and, frankly, in other markets markets because we very much view what we do is a job engine, is a job creating engine. And this is, you know, of all the years I can remember, jobs are needed. Looking at there's somewhat of a dislocation between the stock market and the reality on the street, small businesses. A lot of folks have lost their jobs this year. There's a lot of folks that are out of work. The unemployment rate is magnitudes higher than it was this time last year. And we wanted to do a little something for folks. At the same time, we wanted to keep a spotlight on what we're doing and that we know, we don't just believe that we are a job creating engine. And in fact, in Illinois alone, I think we're employed close to 1,200 folks. At this point, we have 40 projects under construction or 39 projects under construction in that market. And that's meaningful. Those aren't all permanent jobs. You know, A couple dozen of them likely will be permanent and that we contract out all the operations and maintenance works to local companies, electrical contractors, et cetera. So we wanted to not only help folks, but to keep the right attention and focus on solar in Illinois, on community solar in general, and just push this thing forward. 
That is huge. You know, electricity is one of the biggest costs that uh, residential customers have to pay for. So that's amazing that you did that. You know, you talked about how COVID has impact like Summit Ridge in 2020. Can you talk about more how it's impacted the solar industry other than the things that you mentioned regarding construction delays, permitting, things just taking longer to get done? It would be great to get your perspective on the impact. But no, we said in unison on mute here, it was just tax equity. That was number one. We had a household bank walk away from us on the tax equity front earlier in the year when COVID was really just coming into the United States and I think the writing was on the wall at that point. You know, we, like other developers and sponsors in this space, experienced a pretty tough tax equity fundraising environment in March, April, and May. And so we're one of the, quote, developers that has to raise tax equity, though. So we, right. we structure finance internally at Summit Ridge and we own and operate these systems. So we'd say most developers don't do that. Yeah. The vast majority don't. But we take these assets all the way through to commercial operations where long-term owners through our affiliated funds. And that was, I think, even unless you think otherwise, I mean, that was probably the biggest impact for solar industry you know, through our lens in 2020. Of course, the permitting construction delays, you know, New York was on hold there for a while. That was a mass impact to the New York solar industry, but everyone got hit by the lack of supply of tax equity there in 2020. We'll say that we hit the phones from May, June, July, August, and I think we talked to just about anyone who's willing to invest in the tax credit equity space, and we were able to identify three to four partners for 20 and 21, and we've now got those partnerships either closed or final throws in negotiation. So it's been, you know, while it was a very difficult 2020, we've been able to put the pieces together and actually solve most of the tax equity needs going into, into 2020. Yeah, that tax equity is without question. And we're actually at the point where we're walking into 2021 with a very large aggregate commitment from two different shops, which is awesome based on where we were six months ago. To Brian mentioned earlier, that early March timeframe, we had a very large commitment from a household named bank that they wound up taking a step back, I guess, understandably in some respects. But, you know, good Lord, we probably talked to 50 different tax investors over the course of six, seven months and, you know, just stayed scrappy. I think that is very much part of our call here, you know, Brian and I try to do things that, you know, at times demonstrate to our junior folks that, you know, we're willing to roll up our sleeves and get in the trenches with them. And if that requires, if that takes hitting the phones, you know, to talk to every single tax equity investor that's out there, that's an exaggeration. We certainly didn't talk to every single investor out there, but it was a big lift. A ton of help from our folks, our partners at Cohen Resnick along the way. Richard O'Day is a friend of ours and a great business colleague who's helped us and was right there alongside us every step of the way. It took a lot, though. It took a number, dozens and dozens of calls. Everyone stepped, the usual tax equity investors took a step back. And I think that's understandable. You know, tax equity investors typically size their tax investment based off projected income, based off projected profit in a given calendar year. And COVID added a lot of uncertainty around that, to say the least. So that was by far the biggest task that we needed to accomplish. It literally was like hitting the reset button in March. We had that OS moment. Osh moment uh, <laughs> together. And, and, you know, the executive team, all of us were, we actually were at an offsite in March before everything started shutting down and had a very lengthy conversation about what we could do. We could kind of step back and let this thing wash over us, or we could just keep moving through it. And I think we decided to push through and get it done no matter what. And hopefully, you know, going into 2021, I think the economy has definitely settled down. I think we've learned to live with the virus more so than I guess I shouldn't say that. You know, the numbers are still continuing to rise, but I think the initial shock and panic is out of the market at this point. So hopefully we don't have as much dislocation in the tax equity markets as we saw in 2020. 
Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. And that's great to hear. I mean, about you guys pulling up your sleeve and having like new tax equity commitment for 2021. I mean, I'm hearing from a lot of folks in the industry that like basically the available tax equity for 2021 is a lot less than 2020. And there are some investors still out there in the market who are still looking for 2021 tax equity. And I'm not sure if they'll be able to find it. So I think it, you know, as well gives like a competitive, obviously, advantage that you have the whole capital stack committed. So that's huge. I'd say that one other point on tax equity that we learned from 2020 was just that we kept going on our projects in March and April and May. There was a weekend when you mentioned Illinois shut down, other markets slowed down, and we stayed close enough to the, a few of the tax investors that we thought were moderate to high probability to eventually turning around and coming into a full-on commitment. And we felt that things were going to materialize, so we kept our foot in the gas. We actually just kept going on our projects, and so it actually put us in something of a unique position once we got into Q3 and Q4, when we had a few projects with uh, actually you know upwards of, let's see, probably eight, 10 projects without a binding tax commitment and more supply of tax equity in that very awkward Q3, sure. Q4 period. When investors said, hey, we're back, we actually are going to have some profit this year. Yeah, we had projects that were almost entirely constructed by that point. So that's a good point. We did keep going. We didn't slow down on construction activity. We had confidence that we could get it done, but we knew it would be a lot of work. You know, that's not an easy decision to make in March or April, especially in the beginning of the whole pandemic to really kind of push forward. But then it became advantageous, you know, because you're right, the third or fourth quarter, you know, there was more tax equity available. And I even know, you know, tax equity investors looking for 2020 projects. So that's really interesting to know that. And I'm sure that wasn't an easy decision at the time. Obviously, it's always easier to look at it at hindsight. It was a conscious decision that we as an executive team made and really back in that March, April timeframe to keep going, knowing that that would present risk, but that if we did our jobs and, you know, we went out and sourced the necessary tax equity for, you know, projects slated to reach COD to be placed in service in 2020, if we kept going and we sourced that capital, that we would be in a good position come Q3, Q4 to do so. That's what happened. So... This episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Podcast Laundry, the podcast concierge service that I use to make sure that my listeners hear the best quality show. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up time to do more of what you love to do, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347 8 8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Like I appreciate you explaining that. And I know we talked a little bit about this, but what does 2021 look like? Like we obviously talked about tax equity being a big thing, you know, potentially like the same dislocation in the market that we saw when COVID first came, at least in the US, March or April. Maybe we might not see that. Can you talk about like maybe what you're seeing for the solar industry or Summit Ridge Energy in 2021? We think that 2021 is actually, like any year <laughs> compared to this year, should, uh, I think we're optimistic that the industry will grow. I think that we potentially are poised for an administration change, which could be highly advantageous, a very good thing for renewables at large, but certainly for community solar as well. 
we've got some scars, we've got some lessons learned from this year that will make us more confident in our ability to go out you know, and source the necessary capital to complete our projects on time and within budget. I think without question, we're looking at having a bigger year in 2021 than we did this year, just in terms of megawatts on the ground, in terms of revenue generation. I think we're looking to maintain our staff at its current level, kind of in the 40s. I'm a big believer that you can do a lot with the right folks. Our industry still isn't set up to have hundreds of bodies. That's a lesson learned in real time that, or I should say, it's something that I learned firsthand at Sun Edison. Yes. You can see others that have tried to kind of repeat that formula or replicate, and it just usually doesn't work. So we're not a flow business yet. Something that used towards a buzzword yes. that used to kick around Sun Edison always made me laugh. <laughs> Not quite a flow business yet, as long as you're kind of keeping your hand on the opex on the burn throttle, planning out, you know, call it four to six quarters. Where's the business coming from? We just had a big strategy session as an executive team here at our office at Summer Ridge. We've got a big conference room down the hall where we got a group of us spread out and COVID tested and everybody came in and we met for the day and it was just very productive. We know where our megawatts are going to come from next year. We know where we want to focus and what we want to do and how we're going to do it. Yeah, definitely. That is pretty amazing. I mean, it's interesting because it seems like, you know, with what you've done at Summit Ridge, a lot of it's lessons learned from Sun Edison. And I know we talk about this like in the last podcast, Steve, that you're on, you know, episode 26 of the Solar Maverick podcast. What are like the qualities that you're looking for for like the people that work for you? You know, when you talk about 40-ish people, like, can you talk about like what qualities that you both look for when you're hiring someone? We're actually closer to 50-ish people at this point, but we are looking for a more diverse staff at this point and have made a conscious effort, have actually for the past year, to bring in a more diverse staff, both from a race and a gender standpoint and just diversity of background and education and experience. I think the more diverse you are in terms of skill sets and backgrounds and personalities, as long as everyone's rowing in the same direction, you really can create something powerful, an organization that's flexible and built to last and nimble. We do look for folks that are a little more well-rounded, myopically focused in one segment of the business. Certainly when you look for more kind of mid-level, senior-level person, we're looking for somebody that's been in the industry for a while or that brings tangible experience that they can bring to bear within Summit Ridge. And I think we were first looked at as kind of an offshoot from Sun Edison or anything but at this point, the vast majority of our folks, again, we're close to 50 bodies at this point. Most folks did not come from Sun Edison. We've got a handful. We do have a very diverse background that's really benefited the way we think. And I think it's enabled us to build our own culture, our own way of doing things, our own way of looking at things that is frankly superior to where I came from. So diversity on a number of levels, including skill sets, backgrounds, I think is what we have been looking for in terms of personnel for the past several months. But again, the goal isn't to have 100 different bodies at Summer Ridge. I think we're trying to maintain where we're at now. I think we're light in a couple areas and we're going to take care of that, but we're going to stay in the range that we're at now in terms of headcount. Sure. The, you know, but the way it, it's worth saying too, kind of going back to what we were talking about, Brian and I were sitting here, when we look out at 21, we do think something that would be tremendously helpful. I don't mean to completely backtrack on topics. No, that's uh, great. But the industry is in need of some relief on the tax equity front, right? The tax equity markets will still be constrained next year. And, you know, whether that's in the form of some type of cash grant or having an option to have a cash grant that's slightly less valuable, call it 85, 90% of the value of the current tax credit, bringing the current tax credit back up to 30%. I think there's some things that could be done rather quickly that would supercharge our industry heading into next year. It's not like it would happen overnight, but I think the prospect is there for some real change to be implemented in the coming months. It's interesting because obviously the investment tax credit's supposed to step down, obviously 22% next year in 2021 and 10% the year after that. I mean, what do you think is the likelihood of it going back to 30% and potentially changing it to a cash grant so you don't have to worry about like the, you know, someone having a taxable income to take advantage of it? 
What do you think, Brian? If Trump well, wins, what do we think the chances are? <laughs> P0. P2. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if there's an Biden administration, and, and certainly if the Senate were to go Democratic as well, and I don't mean to make things political, but clearly there's the outcome there, the likelihood of something happening is a lot higher than the current administration staying in office. And I am not going to try to predict what's going to happen next week, but there's just a wide range of outcomes there, right? And depending on the outcome, I think the chances of something being implemented either are very high or extremely low. I think that's a great answer because, you know, this podcast interview will come after the election. So we'll have a better idea. And obviously, you know, that will impact the industry who comes in. And do you think the industry can survive with tax equity being at 10% in 2022? The industry is resilient. The industry continues to make advancements in a number of levels that continues to move forward and improve equipment technology, bifacial modules, tracking systems that are widely used now, higher quality tracking systems that can be used in a more diverse geographic the footprint is bigger now. You know, we're looking at actually installing single access tracker systems on the coast of Maine, which I don't wow. think is something I would consider five years ago. Just don't think you're going to see the job growth, the continued job engine. I think it's enough. Yeah, yeah I think 10%, yeah. even with all those things, I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of looking at each other here. Even with all those things, dropping to 10%, it makes things more limiting. It's a step in the wrong direction, 100%. Yeah, definitely. And what is the chances of states having higher incentives? That's a limited option. You might have that in some of the more progressive states could step up and offer more lucrative incentive programs. The EBC cost, the cost to put these things in the ground or on the roof, you know, tends to compensate somewhat depending on the current market conditions. So I could see EBC costs dropping a little. Module efficiency, wattage costs, those things will continue likely to go in the right direction. I don't know if all of that is enough to compensate for a drop to 10% a little more than a year from now, because frankly, what, we're 14, 15 months away from 2022. And once you get to 10%, too, you have to ask the question, are you going to go structure a partnership flip with a third-party tax equity investor? Right. I'm not sure that the legal structuring costs eventually you know, are worth it for a smaller system anyway. I'm sure for you know 100 megawatt utility scale system, it would be, but for commercial solar, for resi community solar, it's a relatively small credit at that point. So That's right. Yeah. And structuring tax equity is extremely complicated to begin with. It's not that it's, but it's an arduous task. It's an expensive task from a legal standpoint. And I don't see those costs necessarily dropping just because the credit's gone from 26%, 22%, whatever it is. I guess it's slated to step down to 22 next year. And then we go to 10, correct? Yeah, 22. That's yeah. The cost to structure the tax equity partnership isn't necessarily going to decrease in lockstep. I can confidently say that it won't. I think you'll see, obviously, like next year, a lot of people safe harboring more than previous two years because of the significant drop down of the ITC from 22%. To safe 10. harboring is a gigantic pain in the rear, as you might imagine. You're probably living it too. Yes, I With am. the volume of business we do now and having to go out and you know procure modules on a forward basis, this is an area that the Brian largely leaves. But to make sure these things are, are tagged and show up at the port at the right time and you know the paid for by the end of the year and Econ 101, it's like you look at dead weight loss, like what value are we all adding by doing the safe harbor process? It's just lock in the, the incentive level, lock it in or just have a more gradual decline over time. Transformer uh, versus not. modules versus you know continuous construction. Yes. And we've taken kind of a hybrid approach. We're not just procuring modules across the board and we're looking at it as a hedge. So we're consciously not safe harboring enough equipment for all of our projected megawatts for our pipeline next year. We're not. And I think most folks take a similar approach. You know, the outcome, even if we do see a 22% regime next year, will have projects that we will not have safe harbor. You know, obviously that hurts the economics of those projects. Yeah, definitely. And that's a great point. You're not just looking at panels. Everyone assumes that's the first thing people look at, but people are looking at different components of that qualify under the 5% safe harbor. That's a great point that you meant that it's not just panels. 
You also are, I guess, involved with energy storage and looking at standalone energy storage. Can you talk about that in more detail? We are. We're investing in standalone energy storage. In fact, I think we plan on keeping that at the Summer Ridge energy level. So Summer Ridge Capital Holdings is our joint venture with our partners at Hayden Armstrong. And we've got dozens of projects that sit in that vehicle at this point. I think from on the storage side of things, we plan on owning and operating a fleet ourselves. I think the at the distribution level, standalone storage is still somewhat of a limited opportunity. We see that growing, though, perhaps in a nonlinear fashion here in the next couple of years. ISO-level storage, utility-scale storage, I should say, is something that we are starting to make investments in. We have an individual here at Summer Ridge that's leading our practice at this point. We see that as an inevitable, that as a vertical in our space that will continue to grow and, frankly, should be a fairly meaningful part of Summer Ridge business here in the next couple of years. I think we it could be you know upwards of half X number of years down the road, X number of years being sub five, right? So we're excited about it. We've got a number of projects that are currently under development. We've secured incentives for some projects in New York City and are taking the next steps. Yeah, that's great to know. I know you mentioned like New York City, which obviously is a great market with a veter for the incentive for storage. What markets are you looking to deploy storage at this point? And are some of the projects as well, like next to your community solar projects, are these separate locations? I think it's primarily New York. It's primarily New York, yeah. It's almost a stepping stone energy storage market. It's still set up within the context of the VEDER program. You can draw that parallel between, you know, VEDER storage and VEDER community solar. So it's a nice stepping stone into energy storage for third-party debt, which, you know, we're currently actually negotiating term sheets on right now, which is good. Whereas a year ago, we really couldn't even get lenders to take our phone calls on, uh, you know, VEDER energy storage. We can actually now get (laughs) a couple of term sheets kicking around. So that's a a step in the right direction. The New York's a big market for us. We're exploring opportunities in Massachusetts and Maryland at this stage. PGM, yep. Yep, in the PGM. But I think New York will be the big focus for us. And we're keeping our finger on the pulse of a couple other Midwestern you know, opportunities as well. But I think the first assets we put in the ground will be probably in, what's see, Brooklyn and Staten Island? Yeah. Yep. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's such a need for energy storage in New York City and Brooklyn and Staten Island. So that'll be great because I feel like it'll probably be one of the first standalone storage projects that I know of because, you know... I'm yeah, we're, we're going to be installing EV chargers in most of those sites as well. That's part of our business plan is to, we're using, I won't say the company, a well-known company in terms of the battery and we're talking to them about EV chargers as well. We're talking to some others about EV chargers. So we're excited there too, especially in the New York City, greater metropolitan area, right? There's a real need for more EV charging. Yeah. One of the sites, Benoit, is right next to a coffee shop. So we've oh, got this whole grand vision where, you know, you got the energy storage system there, you park your car, whatever EV car you got, you park it right there and then grab a cup of coffee, charge it up. Brian drives a leaf. That's his, <laughs> his, his, his EV car. Zero to 60 in like nine seconds. Yeah. Pretty solid. That is pretty amazing. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty creative. I guess you both have like strong views that electrification of the car fleet is going to happen, I guess, in a very quick time frame, like the adoption percentage as energy storage prices go down, which obviously that impacts the electric vehicles as well. I know California, I think, has like 2035, like all new vehicles have to be electric vehicles. So I'm sure obviously with the charging component, with your standalone storage, you guys are very bullish on it. And the Nissan Leaf that Brian has as well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're bullish on it for sure. New York City, here I am stepping into the deep end of an area as a topic that I don't know a whole lot about. I think that without question, we'll, we'll see a proliferation of electric vehicles over the next decade. There's just no question. I think there could be federal policy put in place. More states are enacting policy to curb emissions. So you're just seeing it in real time on a yearly basis. You see more and more electric cars on the road, more hybrid cars on the road. You know, in terms of my view, it would be an uneducated view to tell you anything more than we've gone deep in kind of the New York City area and know that we can make the numbers 
numbers work and we frankly are either purchasing or leasing sites where you know installing EV charging makes a lot of sense. We're also installing EV charging in a number of our rooftop projects where we've got, you know, call it in some cases upwards of seven, eight, nine megawatt rooftop systems on some roofs across different markets, you know, that have very large parking facilities where EV charging also makes sense. For standalone energy storage, you're focused on places and markets where you would get fixed cash flows, not variable cash flows. Because if you're looking for debt financing, I'm sure it's challenging to convince the debt provider to provide debt for variable cash flows. But it sounds we'll, we'll like... We'll be paying for this. We will be using our own balance sheet, I think, for a lot of these EV chargers. So we don't have to do a lot of convincing. And I think we're comfortable with the variable nature of the cash flow in a market like New York. Unless people keep drinking coffee at coffee shops and yeah. shopping for yeah. groceries. Yeah. I think we're, we're, we're okay underwriting at a certain scale. We're not going to be rolling out 10,000 EV chargers next year. We certainly won't be. We're doing this kind of on an incremental basis. You know, Right now, we're using, planning on using our own capital. Definitely. And then I'm assuming like these are supercharger EV charging stations. Yep, that's the plan. What other like trends are you seeing in solar or standalone storage that we haven't spoken about that you think is really important to discuss? What are we seeing that we would want to talk about on a podcast, Brian? <laughs> the secret sauce we want to give up? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we've seen a lot of things. We think we see a lot of things, Benoit sit around and commiserate as a team and come up with some fancy ideas. And in fact, we've been spot on in, on several occasions and been dead wrong in others, but you caught me with this one. EV charging, I think we kind of sure. threw something out there, although that's not super creative. I'm not going to pretend like it is, but where we're placing these standalone battery systems in New York, you know, it, it makes sense. I think in the solar space, one area that you know I'm personally excited for in terms of the industry is the BPPA market. You're starting to see a lot more activity there. I mean, the queues sure. are jammed right now with applications, but it's great even though we're not doing you know 200 megawatt AC, you know, JP Morgan Chase optic type projects. You know, it's really encouraging to see that proliferate and see that just general growth trend. I think you're just going to see more and more of that as corporates get more pressure to meet sustainability targets. You know, we're of course doing two to five megawatt AC, you know, virtual BPA, you know, optic for now. It's an area that we're interested in. We're starting to dabble in and. Uh, I think you'll just continue to see a solid growth there. And it's great to see a lot of our peers in the industry making progress. I alluded to this earlier too, Benoit. We got to rethink this community solar thing at a certain point. We're not there yet, but we are actively working on some partnerships and behind the scenes that we think could be force multiplying type partnerships, for lack of a better description. And there's a way to really expand the number of customers that you can get to. And community solar programs are limited by design, right? Okay. So, you know, I talked about the sandbox becoming bigger and it's crowded right now. I think you see, and hopefully some of Ridges, one of the driving forces is behind this one with our colleagues in the industry that there's a way to do to expand community solar i think there's a 2.0 version of what we're doing now for lack of a better description yeah i agree with you it'll be interesting to see what that is in the future and i think as well like brian that's a great point about vppas i think that's another thing that's really helping grow the industry you know companies wanting to have to purchase electricity from a generation source that's 100 percent renewable and that's creating a lot of opportunity as well within the industry things that i'm trying to figure out is like you know, smaller companies that don't have the same credit profile as a lot of these big companies is, you know, I've seen different ways of smaller off takers getting an opportunity, but it'll be interesting to see how that gets fleshed out as well in the future. Yeah, there's always capital out there that will underwrite the right return on rated customers. And, you know, there are plenty of smaller businesses out there that have great track records. They just don't have any type of credit rating to speak of. Most vast majority of companies don't have any type of credit rating that you're going to pull up on a Moody's or an S&P. But I think there's plenty of money that's out there that even today, again, for the right return, would underwrite a deal with a kind of a non-investment grade rated smaller counterparties. We haven't dived into that too much on our side. 
We feel that there's a problem with you build that needs to be solved. The problem's not the word, but we want to focus our efforts on expanding, kind of taking community solar to that 2.0 phase. So focusing kind of on smaller commercial customers hasn't really been something that's been on our the top of our list of priorities, but you eventually run out of customers in some of these markets, frankly. So they do need to participate. Maine's a great example of a market where you've got a very limited pool of sure. residential customers to tap. And so that actually is a market where we're not only talking to kind of larger DNI offtake customers that have investment grade ratings, but we are talking to several smaller entities as well. It's actually a great example of a market where a small commercial needs to play. Yeah, that's a great point. And as well, like as you mentioned, usually community solar project requires like an anchor tenant that's taking 40% of the offtake. So that could be an opportunity for the smaller player that might not have yeah. the ideal credit to become part of that than these you know, 200 megawatt VPPAs with JP Morgan Chase. So that's interesting. When do you think we reach grid parity in most of the US? I mean, we were talking about obviously incentive structures and obviously the ITC. How far away are we from that? Because like obviously that would make all our lives, I think, a lot easier because you're not concerned with state level incentives and federal incentives as well. I'm sitting here looking at Brian. Aren't we at grid parity in every market? I think it happened last week. We're yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's shaking his head like, no, you idiot. <laughs> It's a good question. I'm kidding. What do you think, Brent? I always look at it from the financial model standpoint. You know, it's uh, with or without ITC, with or without the SREC, pick your market. You know, it's, I was just a couple hours ago looking at some of the Google news feeds and you know, parts of Europe right now are installing large scale PV systems without incentive. So, you know, you see some of these headlines coming out of Europe and some of the models that you see for these West Texas projects. And it's remarkable. I mean, you could point to pretty clear line of sight to grid parity in parts of Western Europe and soon you're in the, in the U.S. But cost structure still needs to go down in most of the kind of like sub 50 megawatt markets before I think we're really there, but I think we're getting closer. I mean, the South, right? Yeah, the South is going to be close. I think there are markets now with just the ITC alone. Solar is extremely competitive on a standalone basis without any type of state-level incentive. So it's, you know, I would venture to say that over the next decade, I would hope that we reach grid parity in most markets. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. That's a great assumption of the future. This has been an amazing interview. I appreciate, Steve and Brian, your time. What's the best way for people to reach out to you or learn more about Summit Ridge Energy? I think our website is probably the best way. We're a small group and our folks are accessible, but certainly our website, srenergy.com, are links to get in touch with us there. And we are also willing to take calls from our colleagues. It is a small industry, all things considered, as you know, Benoit still. And, yes. and uh, a lot of the same folks have been running around the space for a long time and, you know, maybe at different companies, but we're fortunate to have good relationships with a lot of those folks and think that that is key to being successful in a market where relationships, partnership, you know, go a long way. It's obviously mostly like relationship based. Like, how have you built that relationship? Is that really building over time and then that relationship and working with people that you know, like, and trust? Or, like, I mean, because I think that's a differentiating portion of your business as well that you've known people for a very long time and worked with them. We've been doing this for well over a decade at this point. You know, you meet people and work with people and transact with folks. And we're fortunate in our space where you have a lot of highly intelligent, good people that have the right intentions that ultimately we want the same things, the same common goal. So working with customers on a repeat basis and staying in touch with folks and just being accessible in general, I think that's helped us. It helped us from a six-person company with zero revenue to a company we are today doing several hundred million top line and looking at the prospect of growth going into 2021. That's really exciting. And I'm excited about the future of Summit Ridge. And I appreciate, again, both your time, Steve and Brian. This is really insightful and helpful. So thank you again. Always great to talk to you, Benoit. Thank you. Thanks, Benoit. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feed to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown. <laughs>